Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Kyle Kondik, an author and trusted political and elections analyst for the University of Virginia Center for Politics. We're talking about the latest political polling and the fallout from the presidential impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. He also gives us his analysis of the current state of the 2020 elections. Let's talk first of all about the, the status of the impeachment uh, polls. They seem to be sort of coalescing sure. a, a bit the various polls. Do Am I seeing that right? You are seeing that right. And I think what, what, what's gone on here is that impeachment was not necessarily popular prior to the Ukraine story. Part of the reason for that, I think, is that there was a, a significant number of Democrats who were taking cues from their own leaders who basically didn't want to pursue impeachment. And of course, Speaker Pelosi, I think rightly in, in her mind, was sort of prioritizing the needs of her members in most vulnerable districts. And she apparently did not believe politically speaking, that uh, the Mueller report was enough to impeach over. And so there were, you know, maybe a third or more of Democrats in these polls who said they didn't support impeachment. And that, that you know, led to, based on um, overwhelming opposition from Republicans, general opposition from independents, that uh, the impeachment was not popular. Then the Ukraine story happens. Democratic Party coalesces around impeachment. The speaker gets behind it. All of a sudden, we see movement specifically amongst Democrats, with Democrats not, not uniformly, but almost uniformly, uh, coming out in favor of impeachment. You see a little bit of movement among independents. Republicans still overwhelmingly opposed, although not quite as overwhelmingly opposed they were before. And so we've gotten to this point where impeaching and removing the president, it's sort of mixed in terms of the polling. Um, but prior, there was outright opposition. So so let's break this down a little bit. Uh, you, you talk about the early polls. I think one argument was that the Mueller report was muddled at best, sure. uh, certainly to the average voter right. out there who didn't read the 400-plus pages and right. didn't. And uh, the hearings that the House had after the Mueller report were, uh, I think, conservatively speaking, a disaster for, <laughs> for the Democrats, it, or at least it, in advancing— It did not advance it, the story. Advancing said, the yes. story. Uh, you're you're an old journalist, and you got to advance the story, and it didn't. Sure. It, it, it sure. just— muddled things further. Now, the the Ukraine situation, is it because this is something that people can grasp onto, they can understand, it's simple? Is that 
what's moving the polls? I do think that the Ukraine story is sort of is easier to understand than the Mueller report. And look, also, I think the timing matters in that the events that the Mueller report concerns itself with were sort of more during the campaign when the president wasn't the president. And then the Ukraine story is when he actually is the president. And there's this, you know, transcript released by the White House that I think you could certainly read as being um, him, uh, uh, you know, asking for help from the Ukrainian government. Uh, and then the president has doubled down and basically said, hey, Ukraine and China, why don't you investigate the Bidens, et cetera. So I do think it's easier to understand. And uh, the impeachable activity, if in fact you believe it's impeachable, I think it's just easier to, to understand for people. And, and here's the other thing is that, yes, I think from a uh, from a matter of, of actual accountability, the House pursuing impeachment is important because it, it does it will eventually put Democrats on the record that they think that these are impeachable acts. But unless the president is actually removed from office by the Senate, remember, we're going to need 67 senators right. to vote in favor of removal. Which that would be 20 tw- crossing tw- over. Yeah, right? 20 Republicans out of the 53, plus all 47 Democrats. It's not 100 percent clear to me that every Democrat would even vote to convict at this point. Uh, certainly you look at someone like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, um, the mo- you know, the, the sort of the least liberal Democrat you know, from a state that Trump won overwhelmingly. Uh, Manchin may not want to do that. But anyway, so unless you convict the president, then what is this? What is we act, what are we actually talking about here? I think it's using the impeachment process as a weapon against the president in the 2020 presidential election from the Democrat standpoint. Um, and then the question is, 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 is it more valuable to impeach and use the process to make the case against the president? Or is it better to not impeach? And that's that was the choice the Democrats faced. And they still face, frankly, because there hasn't been a vote on impeachment yet. Uh, the, you know, the, the, there's not a trial yet in the no, Senate. No, it's an inquiry and, at this point. And so the, you know, is it possible that the inquiry could just sort of continue here and, and the Democrats could use it to generate more bad headlines about the president, but maybe they never actually proceed to a formal impeachment vote. I mean, that's it seems like they're going to do that and that, that that impeachment vote would succeed. And for our listeners, there's an inquiry. Then there would be articles of impeachment right. drafted by a committee, yes. uh, probably the uh, Adam Schiff committee, but it could be the Judiciary Committee. Right. Those would be presented to the entire House of Representatives. There and then would they be would a majority vote, right. not a two-thirds vote. And then the president, if that vote was in the affirmative, would be impeached. The matter would move to the Senate for a trial where it would take two-thirds of the Senate to remove him from Correct. office. There are two different components. Yeah, and, and also remember that you know the Democrats rule the roost in the House. They just need a majority vote, as you noted, to, to advance impeachment to the Senate. Uh, you know, the trial would be held in the Senate. Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, would have a lot of power there. Uh, the uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, John Roberts, would also would, would preside over that, although, uh, you know, Republicans in the Senate would, would be able to sort of dictate the terms of the trial and maybe would be able to, to do it in such a way that would be beneficial to the president. Because the trial, the rules are Senate rules. They are right. not constitutional right. on and then, the trial. And, and that's another important thing to remember here is that, you know, basically for every other person in the United States of America, they're held accountable by the judicial system if they're accused of committing a crime. The president really is different. I at least interpret it that way. And I think some constitutional scholars do as well. But I don't know if there would be unanimity of opinion on that. But 
um, basically that that you know the 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 Congress is the sole arbiter of determining whether a president has committed a crime or not, and you know it could be it could be obvious to everyone and would be maybe obvious in a court of law that a president may have committed a crime, but if Congress doesn't believe that he has, then then he effectively hasn't, at least while he's president. Uh, likewise, the Congress could impeach the president basically for any reason they want, um, even if he hadn't actually committed a crime. So it's just it's just a different. It's a different venue of justice for the president than it is for any other American, which, I, again, maybe some people would disagree with me on that, but that's sort of how I interpret it. And I think it's an important thing to remember as you follow along with this impeachment battle that really the president legally is, to me, different than, than everybody else. So we're looking this week at new polling coming out and Fox News came out with a poll and and others followed uh, I think NPR and Marist had one and several others sure basically saying now if you look not by party but you look at people being polled 51% say that he should be impeached another 4% say he should be impeached and removed or, no, I've got that backwards. I'm sorry. 51% said impeached and removed. 4% just said impeached. Right. So that's 55% to 45%. That that has been moving in favor of the Democrats on this, has it not? Uh, it has been. Um, some of the polls are a little bit mixed, though. Like Quinnipiac, for instance, found, um, I think maybe uh, maybe 10 days ago or so, they were at 47-47 uh, impeach and remove, and then they came back with, I think, 45 impeach and remove, 49 not. Um, and again, that's statistically basically the sure. same, but it's a little less clear cut than than say um, uh, Fox News or Marist, uh, NBC, Wall Street Journal had a little bit different and different take. And that's why I say to me that the opinion on impeachment and remove is still a little bit mixed. It's just a lot stronger than it was before but, the Ukraine but story. But it's moving. And it's it, it, it is moving. It's moving yes. towards impeachment. And and I know as a, a observer of politics and, and a poll pollster as, as well, you you look. At trends, correct. Now, is this a trend that you expect to continue, or is it one that you expect to snap back and be volatile? Um, I think that there has been a clear trend, but I also wouldn't. Again, I would wouldn't interpret there being like clear public, overwhelming public support for removal. Though I don't think we're at that point yet, but maybe we will get there. And this is the dangerous thing for Republicans: is that. I think the Republican Party in general has basically rallied around the president on this, with some exceptions. Uh, and some people have had sort of couched reactions to it on the Republican side. Yeah, right but, in that fence. <laughs> yeah. But if but if we get to the point where it's, you know, 60 percent support impeachment or removal or 65 percent, which, again, we're not there yet and maybe we won't get there, um, then it gets a little bit harder because that means that there would start to be a sizable minority of Republicans who would actually support impeaching and removing. And also, I think there's a political calculation here that – Will Republicans feel at some point that they're better off with Mike Pence, for instance, as the nominee next year than Trump? Although, here's the thing with impeachment is that you could actually do impeachment in such that you remove the president from office, but you would not forbid him from running for office again. Although the Senate only requires, as part of an impeachment vote, would only require a simple majority to sit to ban someone from running again. <laughs> so that's another wrinkle here. They're separate votes but, here. But that would be a Senate vote. Correct. The House 
mere impeachment does not prohibit correct. someone from running and, again. And hy- correct. Yeah, hypothetically, you could again, you could remove a president with a two-thirds vote in the Senate. Um, and then presumably, if you had two-thirds to remove, you would also have a simple majority to prohibit from running again. But maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not. Two separate votes. Two separate votes. Yeah, which is, which again, it's a, it is a, um, it's a pretty confusing, you know, complicated process. Okay, here. so now layering this, uh, we have President Trump's actions or inactions in Syria with the Kurds and to withdrawing the troops from northeastern Syria, where the Turks are invading as we speak and and embattling the the Kurds. Do issues like that that don't actually constitute impeachable offenses as we know them, do they move that needle on the polls? Um, I don't know if they do. Um, And, uh, you know, you have seen a lot of um, pretty vocal opposition from congressional Republicans. uh, Yeah, people who people who otherwise people who otherwise are pretty supportive of the president, at least in the case of of Lindsey Graham. And of course, uh, Graham is a pretty notable hawk, I think, in the Republican Party. Remember that Trump ran um, at, ran as a dove, really. I mean, he ran as someone who was who was very critical of George W. Bush era foreign policy. And look, I mean, you know, he he claimed to have opposed the Iraq War from the beginning. The historical record, I think, shows something different than that. But in some sense, it doesn't really matter. In that he campaigned as someone who was a critic of that war. And I do think that I don't know if the president did this deliberately or if he just sort of stumbled into it, but I do think that the president sometimes benefits from putting himself on the opposite side of the hawks in the Republican Party because it's a way to remind some voters that what he is and that maybe he is a little bit different from the Republican mainstream, particularly on issues of foreign policy, and that he is in his own way living up to their own expectations of what a, quote, America first, end quote, president would be. In that he is not a free trader, he is not supportive of immigration, and he is not supportive of, of major foreign wars. Uh, and so maybe that's maybe he can actually pitch this decision in Syria as him, and he has tried to pitch it this way uh, as essentially just reducing uh, the foreign uh, or America's foreign uh, uh, imprint abroad. Now again, that says nothing of the whether it's a good idea or not what he did. Um, whether the um, this seeming, uh, um, uh, I mean, I guess you could call it this betrayal, essentially, of an right. ally. I mean, right. it, not, it's not an allied nation, but, but certainly a, a group of people, the Kurds, who have been helpful to the United States in the past. Does that have lasting foreign policy repercussions? Uh, does that hurt our credibility abroad? Those are all reasonable and important questions. But if you just look at the politics of it, uh, I think the president sometimes benefits from a this America first message and this kind of very old school Republican pre-World War II America first idea that, you know, we shouldn't be intervening abroad, that our footprint abroad is, is too large. And, you know, particularly if you look at some voting patterns in, you know, the electorally important Midwest in elections like 1950 when Korea was happening, 1966 when Vietnam was sort of heating up, 2006, of course, most recently uh, w- with Iraq. There's, you know, oftentimes kind of an isolationist vote that comes out that uh, is is skeptical of foreign involvement. And I think in terms of Trump contrasting himself with Hillary Clinton in 2016, he was able to portray himself as the more dovish candidate, and it may have paid some electoral dividends. And of course, 
in an election that was as close as 2016 was, uh, there could be all sorts of things that go into the outcome. But I think the president's positioning on foreign affairs was probably a net positive in places that were electorally important. So we've said that this crystallization of this issue with the Ukrainians uh, is something that people can grasp and understand sure. and, and may may or may not resonate uh, with them. But now we're getting uh, two arrests of uh, compatriots of Rudy Giuliani, two other unnamed conspirators who have not been uh, arrested. Will these things tend to muddle that and make it more difficult to sell the idea of impeachment, or will they move that needle further towards impeachment? I think since we're sort of in the middle of this story, and I think this, 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 these developments with, with some of uh, you know, Giuliani's associates, it, it sort of illustrates that there are going to be new revelations that come out that I think may help make the Democrats' case a little bit stronger in terms of impeachment. But we don't know what those things, as we're talking here now, we don't know what those things necessarily will be. But part of the reason to do the inquiry is to really turn the screws on the administration and try to flesh out all the stuff that's happened. And we don't quite know that yet. Now, does this does this thing with Giuliani's associates make impeachment more likely? I, I, you know, I just really don't know. Um, but it, it all depends on you know, so, sort of where it leads. And that, you know, there's been some thought about, well, should the Democrats try to do this this impeachment vote quickly or should they take their time? And I almost wonder if they should take their time because that allows them to build more of a case. And again, if, if you don't have the votes in the Senate to remove, then what is the purpose of the inquiry from a political standpoint? And to me, it's essentially to gather more bad press for the president. Uh, and I think there's more bad, bad press to be developed. Uh, and, and we'll just have to see where that goes. So l- let's look at the Republicans now and let's look at the role of Senator Mitt Romney from Utah. Just got elected, uh, basically safe seat, won sure. by what, 65 percent or something like that. Yeah. Uh, a large vote in, in Utah is not endangered, right. uh, seems to be the voice of the opposition at this point. And some of the things I've read said that he is trying to, behind the scenes, build some opposition so that if nothing else, he can be the power broker Mm -hmm. in 2020, either to allow the removal, perhaps, or to to block it with some concessions. Uh, How important is that role? Uh, I think Romney's role is very important. And in fact, when Mitt Romney was thinking about running for the Senate, I wonder if he sort of envisioned that this was the this was the the I think what he would put it as the, the duty he could he could perform for his country. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he is in an interesting position because Utah is a very Republican state, but it is not a pro-Trump state, really. Uh, and in fact, you, you know, we had we had Evan McMullen, the um, kind of independent conservative who ran in, who was Mormon himself, who ran in 2016, and he got a decent share of the vote in uh, in Utah, which I think shows that, that, you know, in a lot of places, if you find yourself on the wrong side of the president as a Republican, you're going to pay a price for that. I think Romney's got some freedom of movement here, one, because he's not on the ballot for many you know, many more years. And who knows, maybe he, he'll only be a one-termer. He, you know, he's, he's, uh, 
he certainly uh, he, he's he is on the older side. Although he certainly doesn't come across that way. Right. Um, that's what, one of the benefits I think of living the Mormon lifestyle. Is he's such a, <laughs> he's a clean living person. You know, he doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't drink coffee. Um, and you know, he's his he's, looks haven't changed. No, much. I mean, he's, he, since he, he ran for president, he, he he looks great. He sounds great. I mean, he seems very much with it. Um, and uh, and again, he has some freedom of action here. And, and there are some potentially movable Republican senators. You know, Susan Collins of Maine is up for reelection. She has a very difficult vote on a potential impeachment because um, she still retains some crossover appeal. But she became a more nationalized figure during the Brett Kavanaugh fight, uh, which may or may not imperil her next year. But maybe impeachment would hurt her even more. Uh, and there are a number of retiring senators like, for instance, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, who I don't think is a huge fan of the president, um, and he doesn't have to face the voters again, so he might also be able to participate here. And, you know, it's not just having 67 votes for removal, which, again, I don't think the Republicans or the, the Senate would be even close to at this point. But if there are certain procedural votes in, in terms of setting the, the tone for the trial, in fact, even, you know, some sort of motion to dismiss. Or how long the trial right. or you know, what if, rules. If Republicans stay united, essentially Mitch McConnell can dictate through them what the, what the trial is going to be like and how long it lasts. But if there are a number of senators who maybe don't want to vote to uh, uh, to convict, but also want to make sure that the Senate, that the trial in the Senate is not essentially a sham, um, they may vote with the Democrats on certain things as they set up the trial. So it's, it, if, if Romney is voting with the Democrats on certain things, um, that may be important, particularly if he could bring along a few others uh, to, uh, um, you know, to, to make sure that the, the, that the trial doesn't go precisely how the White House and Mitch McConnell want it to go. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other Bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let's talk a bit about Mitch McConnell. He's up for election this this coming November, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he uh, obviously has been um, a, a great proponent of the president's policies. Sure. I don't know how they get along, but at least the president's policies and and has really hung on to the fact that they're changing the judiciary and and, and so forth. Is there anything that will move him? 
Um, I doubt it, save uh, wholesale changes in public opinion. Uh, and look, here's the, here's the thing. Here's how the, these things interact. Like I, I mentioned earlier that I think the Democratic voters got the signal from the speaker that it was OK now to support impeachment. And we saw public opinion move. Um, if Republicans don't give their voters essentially permission to support impeachment, then they probably won't. And likewise, this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing. If voters don't indicate if Republicans don't indicate that they want the president removed, then the leaders may take that as a signal not to push for his removal. So if neither side is pushing the other, then maybe opinion doesn't really move. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell represents a state that voted very overwhelmingly for Trump. McConnell himself is not as popular as Trump is in Kentucky. Um, he does have uh, a real opponent in Amy McGrath, who's a former congressional candidate. I personally think that she's probably positioned herself too far to the left in her congressional campaign to really be super viable statewide in Kentucky. But McConnell's numbers are not particularly good. I think he should still be OK. But if you know, again, it comes back to this this idea that if if. I think most Republicans feel like they're better off with Trump than without him from an electoral standpoint in 2020. Does something happen to change that? I don't know. Um, and and uh, that perhaps is volatile, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is volatile. And it, it depends some on public opinion, but I think it also depends on events themselves and what more comes out about the president. And that's so, again, that's sort of the point of the inquiry is to try to dig up as much of that stuff as, 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 as you can from the Democratic perspective. So let's talk about the president's election strategy. Obviously, he's targeting Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, the, the Rust Belt and those states that uh, Wisconsin uh, sure. as well, the, the states that he thinks and probably accurately so pushed him over the uh, electoral college. You know, you wrote the book back in 2016, The Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President. My first question is, how relevant is Ohio in, in all of this anymore? We don't hear much about Ohio. And secondly, I want you to comment on that strategy of targeting those kinds of electoral college states. So the thing about Ohio is that, you know, the reason I wrote the book was to sort of explore it's, you know, it's pretty prominent role in presidential elections a lot of the time. I'd say particularly in the, you know, in, in this century, there's been a ton of focus on Ohio. But really, if you, you know, I went from 1896 to 2012, and no state better reflected the national voting patterns than, than Ohio did, I think, particularly in the second half of that time period. So there wasn't really any clear trend, although the state usually votes a little bit more Republican than the nation. And then what ha what changed in 2016 is that um, the state got significantly more Republican than the nation. You know, voted for Trump by eight points when Clinton was wanting the national popular vote by two. So, so in terms of margin, the state was ten points more Republican than the nation, which was the furthest Ohio had been from the national vote since 1932. Wow. Um, and 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 you know, I think what, what we see in the electorate is that there's you know there's there's a there's a, a growing. Uh, uh, percentage of the electorate that's non-white, you know, nationally it's 25 to 30 percent of the electorate, give or take. Those voters are voting, you know, three quarters or more for Democrats. And then you have the white vote, which collectively is a Republican leaning block. Uh, but there are differences in the white vote, specifically among white voters who have a four-year college degree and white voters who do not have a four-year college degree. Uh, that latter group, white voters without a four-year college degree, have been trending Republican. This is prior to Trump. This was happening, but but Trump really hypercharged those trends. I think he was a um, he was a good he was a good candidate for that kind of voter, better than Mitt Romney, for instance, was for Republicans. And at the same time, uh, white voters with a four year degree who used to be the bedrock of the Republican Party 
Um, Hillary Clinton was probably the first Democrat to win that group. Um, different, you know, you can't take these <laughs> post-election polls as 100 percent right, truthful. Right. You know, you, this is why I'm using kind of general numbers, you know. Right. Um, uh, but that, most people seem to feel that way that, you know, Clinton won white college voters. All those different sources disagree with that. And um, so what you're seeing is this is this trade-off happening in the electorate with whites with a four-year degree becoming more Democratic, whites without becoming more Republican. And Ohio uh, has a – is first of all, is whiter than the nation. And secondly, it has a uh, relatively high percentage of white voters without a four-year degree. Um, you, if you listen to election analysis, you'll hear these voters referred to as, quote, white working class. Um, but a lot of the vo- white voters who don't have a four-year degree – you know, when you say working class, that sort of connotes that someone is, um, you know, maybe struggling financially or kind of uh, poorer or, or lower middle class or what have you. But actually, a lot of um, white people who don't have a four-year degree may actually be pretty successful. They might be um, older people with good pensions. They might be small business owners. They might have any, you know, any number of, you know, good blue-collar jobs, et cetera. Um, so, again, that white working class moniker can be a little deceptive. But... The overall point is that these groups are shifting and that Ohio has a higher percentage of these white voters without a four-year degree. They're trending Republican. Therefore, Ohio is uh, trending more Republican. And I don't think anything we saw in the in the midterm in 2018 would really suggest that that's changing. You know, Sherrod Brown got reelected to the U.S. Senate. Um, you know, he did, he, he did fine. I don't think he did great. He, he did fine. And uh, the Republicans won all the statewide executive offices in, in Ohio. Um, and so they've, they continue to rule the roost in, at the state uh, political level. Um, and the state house. And the, yeah, right, at the state house. Right. Um, and, you know, healthy majorities. And really, state government's been dominated by Republicans really since, uh, since 1990. Right. Um, you've only had one Democratic governor since then. You know, Ted Strickland uh, elected in, in 2006. Republicans have controlled most of the statewide offices for that time period. Um, so, you know, the, I think where Ohio exists in the electoral environment right now is that you would not expect it to be, you know, the number one state in terms of spending and, and campaign visits. And in fact, it probably would be down the totem pole there. But Trump cannot win without Ohio. So if if we're following the campaign in the fall and there is polling that essentially indicates that Ohio is tied or something like that, that's probably more broadly indicative of an environment where the president's probably losing because there are lots of similar kinds of voters throughout the Midwest. And if Trump is sort of losing several points off his margin for 2016 in Ohio. That probably also means the same thing's happening in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Those are states he all he, he that were collectively decisive in 2016, uh, and uh, the the president won them all by less than a percentage point. So Ohio, I think, can be sort of a a broad indicator maybe for the rest of the region. Uh, but I think Democrats look at it and say, "Hey, we don't have to win Ohio." And in fact, that's been true historically. Is that just cut the margin? Yeah, one of the one of the, the the points I make in the book that it, I think is probably even truer now than it was before is that winning Ohio is a necessary but not sufficient condition for Republican presidential victory, because throughout the entire history of our two party current two party system, Democrats versus Republicans, which you could date back to 1856, Ohio was voting voted for the losing candidate in five of those elections. Um, and each time uh, that happened, it voted for a losing Republican over a winning Democrat. And so the last time that happened uh, was Ohio voted for Richard Nixon in 1960 in the very close and competitive 19, 1960 presidential election against John F. Kennedy. Um, so 
you know, the, the, the president cannot put together an electoral college majority without Ohio, which I think makes the state somewhat tempting. And, we, you know, we see the Democrats, uh, you know, holding uh, their 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 presidential debate uh, uh, in in Westerville in Otter, at Otterbein at Otterbein, yeah. And and uh, first of all, I think you know that well, I don't think there's really any sort of electoral impact from where a debate is held. Uh, the fact that they're holding in Ohio, I think, is 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 notable in that in that they they still want to bring their candidates to Ohio and have some attention paid to the candidates in Ohio. But also, that particular part of the state is has a lot of these. Uh, you know, it's an affluent, highly educated suburban area. Westerville itself is trending Democratic, uh, as is a lot of the kind of suburban zone in and around uh, Columbus. And in order for Democrats to win the state, they need to enhance their margins in those places to make up for the votes that they're losing, I'd say particularly in Appalachia, but really in a lot of rural areas and small cities across the state. All right. I want to shift gears as we wrap up, and, and that is to look at the Democrats. Obviously, the, the field is way too broad to, to have any predictions at this point. But let me ask, how important is the Democratic candidate to this election? Or is this up or down on Trump and almost anybody uh, could could run? It's a great question. I would say that whatever you think about the importance of so-called candidate quality now as compared to maybe 30, 40 years ago, I think candidate quality probably matters less because the parties, I think, are – there's less ticket splitting. There are less voters willing to switch who they vote for. Now, there are a lot of people who still did that, and there are a lot of people who voted for Obama who also voted for Trump. But the parties, I think, have higher floors than they used to. You know, maybe um, you think about the great – blowouts in the 20th century. And there, there used to be a lot of really uncompetitive presidential elections. But even some of the weakest candidates like Barry Goldwater and George McGovern, they both got around 40 percent of the national vote. Um, I would say that, that you know, maybe these days, maybe more like 44, 45 percent is the floor. Uh, you know, we saw uh, John McCain competing in a really horrible electoral environment. Uh, he got, I think, 45, 46 percent of the vote in, in 2008. Uh, and, you know, for all of Trump's problems and all the questions about him being able to unify his party, he really effectively did, you know, did unify his party. He got 46 percent, which, again, isn't great. But given his electoral advantages in some of the key um, the key swing states, he was able to, to, to eke out a, uh, a victory. So that's a long way of saying that, you know, we, we Democrats are rightly agonizing over, hey, is who's the best candidate? You know, is Elizabeth Warren? Is it Joe Biden? Is it somebody else? Um, but it may be that all of them are just sort of a generic Democrat <laughs> right. and that um, if the president's stuck at 42 percent approval or whatever and his disapproval over 50, it may be that any of them could beat him. Um, but, you know, it's, it, I think there's been a per, some perception that, you know, Biden is a stronger candidate than Warren because maybe he's not as far to the left as Warren. But I think the Warren people would argue that, well, you know, these elections, if, if there aren't that many swing voters, they're all about generating enthusiasm particularly for less regular voters, notably young people, who's the better candidate to get young people to come out and vote? Is it Joe Biden, who essentially has very little support from the youngest voters? Or is it somebody like Sanders, who has a lot of support from younger voters, not much from anybody else, but from younger voters? Biden has African-American vote. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true, too. And so what if – so maybe you nominate a candidate who's good at turning out – 
you know, white college students, but isn't very good at turning out African-Americans. And um, maybe Biden turns out African-Americans, although I can't imagine he would do as well as Barack Obama did, who created no, right. I think kind of historic African-American turnout for obvious reasons. Uh, or though maybe, you know, what if Kamala Harris was the nominee or Cory Booker and you had an African-American candidate, would that person generate a little bit better turnout? So to me, there are pluses and minuses with all these candidates. And I think it's convenient to buy into kind of conventional wisdom and say, oh, well, Biden's a better candidate. Uh, but I don't I don't know that to be the case. And, and I think that there are, you know, different candidates bring different pluses and minuses to the table. Last question. And that is if somebody is a, a layman out in the Midwest, a political observer, you're on the inside of all the facts and figures and trends. What's the thing that we should be looking for? What's the next thing that we should pay close attention to? Um, I would say that uh, Republican support of the president, and even though it's been very consistent, are there does support for impeachment or removal tick up a little bit amongst Republicans? Uh, does uh, does his approval rating dip a little bit amongst Republicans? That really hasn't happened yet. Um, but at a, at a bare minimum, you know, the president needs to keep that part of his party united. He can't win if it, that's if that's not the case. Um, and one other thing, if you're looking at polls, so the approval rating of a president for an incumbent president is usually usually a pretty good proxy for what that person is going to get in a uh, in a general election. And you know, the president's approval is such now that it's. You know, it's lower than what his vote share was. His vote share is about forty-six percent. His approval is, you know, depending on the poll, thirty-eight to 42. 41, 42, yeah. 43, something like that. And also, there's been a trend in some of these polls where the president may be actually, in, you know, he's at, let's, I think Fox News in one of the recent polls, it was forty-five percent approval, which is a little bit better than maybe some of the others. But in uh, a named ballot test against, say, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. You know, those candidates were leading Trump and Trump was only getting 40 percent of the vote. So, so they're in those polls. Underperforming. Yeah, he's underperforming his his approval rating. And that can't happen for this president. He he probably will have to get do, you know, win a, a tiny segment of voters who disapprove of him. And this is what he was successful at in 2016, is that there were about a fifth of the electorate had an unfavorable view of both Clinton and Trump. Uh, Trump won those voters, according to the exit poll, 47 to 30. The rest of them voted third party. Uh, so uh, amongst the people who, who were sort of wavering and who had bad feelings about, the, about both candidates, he won that group. Can he do that again? Or was that just a function of people wanted to change in the White House? Clinton was unpopular. You know, can another Democrat do better amongst that group? Because if that's the case, the president's path sort of gets more narrow. Kyle, as always, thanks for sharing your Thank wisdom. You. We appreciate it. Normally, we do this on the phone. It's, it's nice to do it face-to-face. -face. It is great to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today, our guest was author and political analyst Kyle Kondik. He's given us his analysis of the impact of the presidential impeachment inquiry on current polling and his snapshot of the 2020 presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. 
If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. Once again, that's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.